Good morning, everybody. Uh, I hope you're well uh, on this fine Monday morning. Um, I'm Max Camplin. I'm a board director at BCG. Today we're going to be talking about cars, uh, with a particular focus um, on London. Uh, we have elections uh, in in a few months across London. This is certainly a topic of debate. I've had my first leaflet through door in Ealing about LTNs, uh, and I'm sure there will be more. Um, Sadiq's recently appointed Seb Dance um, as his new Deputy Mayor for, for Transport for London, uh, and he said some interesting things to the London Assembly last week. Uh, he said that car driving is a blip in the history of transport um, and should be making way for modes of other travels, essentially calling for a modal shift away from cars. Um, the Mayor himself published a report on the action needed to achieve uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2030 um, and that report seeks to reduce car traffic by 27% and he said um, as I see it London is at a crossroads if we continue down the path we are on we would be gambling with the future of young Londoners choosing to stand by while toxic air fills their lungs or we can choose to take a stand and we can become a global leader in introducing smart road pricing, reducing car traffic, and make London a greener, safer place for everyone to live. I think the public policy direction is clear. Uh, in London, there's an unequivocal desire to, to massively reduce car ownership and, and use. But there are elements of this debate that are still live, as, as there always should be. Uh, it's been polarized at times, particularly around some of the discussion on low traffic neighborhoods and the ultra low emission zone. So there's some questions we kind of want to explore um, today, you know, perhaps whether our policy instruments are, are too blunt at the moment. And if we are going to use the LTNs and the ULES, how are they best implemented? Um, and how fast do we go to reduce vehicle use and emissions? Um, and also consider perhaps the differences across London in, in designing policy. Some people have excellent access to public transport. Uh, their child's school is around the corner from where they live. They have a GP nearby. Uh, they have a network of friends to lean on. But that's not always the case um, for everyone. And also linked to that is how the planning system um, and how we make places can help do this. Um, there are undoubtedly significant advances in designing out cars um, in new development. Um, not least in, in appearance and, and um, availability of public realm. Um, I'm going to leave you with three more points before I introduce Claire to kick us off. Uh, more than a third of car trips made by Londoners could be walked in under 25 minutes and two thirds could be cycled in under 20 minutes. Uh, the poorest Londoners are among the least likely to have a car, instead relying on public transport. Uh, Sadiq Khan's transport strategy aims for 80% of all trips in London to be made on foot, by cycle, or by, or by public transport by 2041. Only around 55% of journeys were, were made that way uh, at the start of 2021. Um, we've got a really expert panel today, both finely attuned political and, and policy brains and people with first-hand experience of dealing with these issues in their communities and in the planning process. Um, delighted to be joined by Councillor Claire Holland, leader of Lambeth Council since June 2021, um, with 
very bold plans, ambitious plans to make Lambeth the most environmentally responsible borough in London. She's also been a strong advocate and champion uh, for low traffic neighbourhoods uh, in her borough. Uh, Councillor Peter Golds, who isn't on screen at the moment, but will be later. He's leader of the Conservative group in Tower Hamlets, hugely experienced councillor of some 20 years, uh, about to head into another local election cycle with the spectre of uh, Luke Raman once again back in the context contest in Tower Hamlets. Uh, we've got Victoria Porter, associate pan uh, partner at iTransport, one of London's most talented and experienced transport planners. And finally, Neil Lawrence, a director in town planning at Abbasson Young. Uh, Neil has expertise of, across the board in terms of uh, large-scale mixed-use uh, development. He also lives outside London uh, and may be able to attest to a slightly different feeling and attitude around um, the car in less urban areas. So we'll have some time for questions and discussion later, but um, first of all, I'm going to introduce um, Claire and the rest of us will uh, disappear off our screen to give her the stage. Claire, over to you. Thank you very much. Can you hear me, Max? Great. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me to this discussion. It's really invaluable to have opportunities like this to talk about what we want our city to look like, how we can make it safer, cleaner, fairer and more sustainable. Um, and in order to enable our city to thrive, we do need a fair and efficient transport system, which promotes health and well-being, is inclusive and can adapt to different local needs and priorities. And in addition to national and regional government and the mayor, as you were just talking about, Max, local authorities have a crucial role to play in this. As you said, we have our planning powers to create car-free developments, encourage transit-orientated development, work with TfL for local services, for example, in my borough for an east-west bus service. And also as local authorities, we have control of our curbsides and much of our public highway. So the question is, do we want our streets used for private car storage only, or do we wish to repurpose some space for neighborhood parklets? For small businesses to expand onto the street as they adapt to surviving and living with COVID. And low traffic neighbourhoods, they've been around for decades, but the pace of their expansion as part of the city's emergency transport response to COVID has brought about some recent, recent rapid change across some parts of our city. Now we know that the mayor introducing the ULES and local authorities introducing LTNs do bring about a reduction in car use and behaviour change. They help to reduce carbon emissions, clean up our air and help to create healthier neighbourhoods. But we also have to be real about the challenges. We know that if you're an, on a low income, disabled or a woman, you are less likely to own a car. 60% of households in my borough do not have access to a car. And if you're a disabled pedestrian, upwards of four times more likely to be injured in a collision. And if you do own a car, many are unable to afford the transition to an electric vehicle without subsidies from the government. And also that permit pricing differentials can penalise those who can afford it the least. So interventions such as ULES need measures such as car scrappage schemes, especially for small businesses to survive. And with LTNs, it's not just about having the modal filter in place. It's about removing other barriers to active travel, 
like bike affordability, having somewhere to store it, feeling safe cycling on main roads, ensuring our pavements have drop curbs and street clutter removed, that parents feel confident it is safe for their child to walk or scoot to school, safe both in terms of road danger and air quality. And we also know that some people rely on their cars for health or business reasons. We know that in some areas of London, public transport infrastructure or active mobility options aren't as good as other parts. These are facts that embed a hierarchy of use that is different to overcome. So we need to talk about these trade-offs. We need to have open conversations and not be afraid of the challenges. But fundamentally, we do know that the continuing the absolute dominance of car use may appear to be an attractive short-term solution because it's dressed in the cloak currently of rights and liberties, but it is a policy that is outdated and no longer works. It fringes on others' rights and liberties and ultimately lives. It continues to reinforce inequities embedded deep in our society, and it doesn't address the issues of the climate crisis, health and social inequalities, toxic air, and road danger. So for us in Lambeth, creating a safer, efficient, sustainable transport system is fundamental pillar to building a fair and equitable recovery, and is fundamental for us to social justice. Um, there's a lot more I can talk about about LTNs, and I'm more than happy, or about any other transport initiatives we're taking and about how we're going about trying to redress the imbalance that we see in our neighbourhoods. Um, but if I leave it there, maybe I can answer some questions later on in the discussion. So thank you. Thank you, Claire. That was um, a very strong um, opening on this subject. I think it's brought in quite a few interesting things that we might pick up on later. I think um, just to pick up on one thing, which is as someone who just lives in a, in a house in normal neighbourhood in Ealing, is um, the predominance of the car on the street, and my road happens to be one of those sort of cut-through pieces, and the idea of having more public realm, more places where your children feel safe in terms of coming out of the house and, and playing and, and walking to the park. So there is an almost opportunity, just on a very small scale, to create these little pockets, you know, as you, as you sort of referred to in neighbourhoods, and we know the importance of nature and greening and and all of that for, for how people um, feel. Um, I'm going to bring in Peter now, if Peter could bring his camera up um, and his microphone. Yeah. Hi Peter, I'm going, to, I'm going to give the stage to you for sort of five minutes um, and uh, either to agree with some of the things Claire said or, or, or disagree or, or offer a different view. Over to you. Um, I'd like to offer a a different perspective but I would like to begin by saying I've had a very very long interest in environmental matters I remember or, or um, I have a very long memory of the Environmental Protection Act going through Parliament in 1990 because at the time I was a parliamentary officer for the chemical industry in the United Kingdom so I was really really concerned at the issues of the environment and protecting the environment and how we need to protect the environment. And as Margaret Thatcher said, the planet is both fragile and precious to all of us. We have a problem with personal transport worldwide. Um, despite Seb Dance saying that car ownership is a blip in the history of transport, I suspect that Mr. Dance will probably be a blip 
um, whilst cars will go on. We have to wean people off car usage and we have to wean people with, to put it crudely, a stick and a carrot. The first thing is understanding sustainable transport policy. London has in many ways the finest public transport in the whole of the United Kingdom, as many of the great cities in the world do. Um, where I live in Tower Hamlets, we have numerous bus routes, we have the Docklands Light Railway, we're going to have Cross Rail, we have the Jubilee Line, we have other lines, we, need, we have London Overground. We've got London Overground now, which has for the first time in more than a century effectively connected North and South London, because at one time they were two quite distinct transport hubs. But how do we wean people off car usage? I'm sorry to say, and this is my Tower Hamlets experience coming up, the idea of properties being designated car free is a chimera. We are a very, very skewered borough. We have the highest requirement of new housing of any local authority in indeed in the country. We have more high-rise developments than anywhere in Western Europe. And we have parts of the Isle of Dogs, which I represent on the council, that have a population density that equals that of Kowloon in Hong Kong. So we are a very, very skewered borough. We also have a strange statistic on car ownership and that the highest percentage of car ownership or um, private vehicle ownership is amongst the Bangladeshi community living in social housing because of course for many people who cluster in the new high rises and Canary Wharf, one, they can't use cars, they haven't got any facility to keep a car and they're the sort of people that go everywhere by taxi or by Uber driver. So car usage is very, very strange here. But I'm, I monitor the so-called car-free developments, and here we get the political reality. Tower Hamlets declares itself as an, a, a climate crisis. We have all the, um, we have a council meeting, we declare the climate crisis, we go through this, we go through that. We then have a car-free development. But the London Borough of Tower Hamlets policy is that if you move to a car-free development and you have an existing parking permit, you can take it with you. So car-free developments aren't car-free developments because the social housing element of it, of it is, is that people merely transfer their car ownership. I would look very much at what we do with car ownership. I have a real thing about these gigantic Chelsea tractors that fill our streets. I admit I have a car. I have a small Peugeot. I have the smallest Peugeot you can get, a little one. I don't use it a great deal. I use it to go and see members of my family that are somewhere away and I use it once a week to go shopping. If I'm going to the town hall, I walk or get the bus. So I don't really use my car a great deal. Um, I have a health problem. I can't use a bicycle. I never have been able to because I have a problem with my ear and I would fall off a bike. But I do walk and I do use public transport. But we also have to understand the issues of <clears throat> of car and the environment and the noxious stuff that it pumps into the air. And I have a staggering quotation here, dating back to 1957, albeit 65 years ago, when, when the British Transport Commission were advocating the um, abolition of electric powered trolley buses and their replacements by diesel buses. And I give you the most, perhaps the most staggering quote I've ever read in an official document. 
Medical research shows that exhaust from a well-maintained diesel engine constitutes no risk to health. How on earth that ever appeared in a public document, I do not know. Not least of which, of course, in 1957, it was well known that the Nazis used diesel fumes in their extermination program. So the idea that diesel emissions constituted no danger to public health is absolutely preposterous. So what would I do? I've said a great deal here. I, I'd itemize some of our problems. Firstly, I would make sure that public transport is available much more often. I would put it crudely, I'd take on the unions out of the night lines on the tube. I would make sure there are more buses that run at night. I do believe that um, we need to get more people on bikes, but equally cyclists have a responsibility. And that is to make, to understand that they have, that, that they um, don't have a sense of entitlement to pavements to the entire roadway. They don't have a sense of entitlement to shoot through red lights, to um, sit in a road, to go, to go along a pavement or a roadway, texting, listening to music and endangering other people, which causes enormous resentment. I would heavily tax what I call Chelsea tractors. They, de they need to be taxed. I would tax heavily the great big sports cars, the Lamborghinis that kids love driving up and down London. They're not, they're not useful vehicles. They, I mean, they're just showpieces. But equally, we need a policy, not only from London, but we need a policy beyond, beyond London to make sure that there is sustainable transport throughout the country. So you don't have people in isolated communities where a car is the only method of transport they have. Let us never forget that you've got places in the country not far from London where they might get one bus a day, and that bus might take them to a, a railway station 15 miles away. In terms of low traffic neighbourhoods, um, we, we had a few weeks ago, actually in August of last year, a council by-election which took place in a low traffic neighbourhood area where the Council support the candidate supporting the LTN on behalf of the administration was absolutely buried. And every other political party, well, um, both the Conservative and certainly the, um, the independent political party, advertised, the, um, were able to widely advertise letters. And I quote the Metropolitan Commi Police Commissioner warned, it's harder for officers to get down streets that they could have previously got through faster. Well, the London Fire Brigade called for the council to suspend its road closures, quote, in the event that someone dies as a result of not being able to get an ambulance to them. Now, I'm not scaremongering because we have video and pictures of an ambulance trying to negotiate their way around what I can only call was a badly organised low traffic neighbourhood. So these are good ideas, but there needs to be a great deal of work into them. They need to be properly understood and they need to be worked out very very carefully i will conclude by saying in one in tower hamlets there was a proposal for low traffic neighborhood to make brick lane traffic free this is a very good idea enormously popular with the hipsters and the only the way to do that was to send the send traffic that would be traveling up brick lane and divert it well it was diverted it was very good somebody on a piece of paper doing desktop found out where to go and diverted the traffic into the Chicksand estate, the poorest estate in the London borough of Tower Hamlets. In other words, they were diverting traffic into an area which is the last place that should have had heavy traffic use. I'm sorry I've run over time. Thank you, Peter. Um, that was very interesting. I mean, I think just a, a couple of things in there. Um, every borough in London has a, um, 
a different personality and a different um, set of requirements. It is not universal. I think there were some areas actually, um, despite what perhaps you said, of agreement, um, but certainly advocating, I think, from your perspective, that there's um, uh, more testing and, and more exploration of um, the right policy uh, yeah. to forward, but actually, you know, um, getting uh, the unnecessarily large cars off the road and um, the big sports cars, uh, which of course are not making essential journeys, um, um, I think we would all agree with. I'm going to ask everyone to come back on to screen now, please, and we'll get into some questions. And I want to bring Victoria and Neil into this. Um, so, Victoria, I'm going to start with you um, as a, a transport planner who's been dealing with these issues in, in, in the planning process and having listened to, to Claire and Peter. I just wondered um, if you've got any thoughts on this. Thanks, Max. Um, I, th I think it's really interesting listening to both Councillor Holland and Councillor Gold. There's actually some crossover in what you're both saying. Um, and one of the things that I absolutely agree with Councillor Golds on is the need for carrots and sticks. You can't enforce positive change without carrots and sticks. Um, and that's what sort of, you know, effective transport policy is all about. But I also agree with Councillor Holland that LTNs have shown a positive change when they're planned properly. Um, they can reduce traffic through those areas. And it there is evidence that shows, albeit we need more evidence, there is evidence that's beginning to show that, that the reductions in traffic that you get through those areas, it doesn't result in an immediate displacement on the surrounding streets. And it, it is showing, you know, positive increases in cycle um, use and positive increases in pedestrian um, mode. So it's all about creating mode shift. And I think we are all agreed that we do need to important we do need to to create change and um you know the the environment um there's a very real need to do this but unless you have the, the carrots to go with the sticks it it doesn't work and there's a real need i think in london particularly to look at public transport fares um public transport isn't accessible to everybody and it's what councillor holland was saying is that you really need to um be able to, everybody needs to be able to access transport not everybody can afford to buy a bike. Not everybody can afford to travel by tube. Not everybody can afford to take a taxi. So unless you have the the measures to reduce fares to go with the other sort of, you know, the other more positive things, it, it doesn't all work. And things like electric vehicle scrappage and things like that, if we're if we're trying to reduce emissions, firstly, I think we need to get people out of their cars full stop. But then you need to look at people being able to and have more access to to choosing to change their car to a more environmentally friendly one. There are many, many people that cannot change their car to an electric vehicle. So I, I personally don't think that EVs are the way forward. I think travel behaviour change is the way forward um, and LTNs are part of it. I think that's a really good point. There is um, uh, perhaps incorrectly this notion that somehow we can continue as we are, but instead we've got electric cars rather than petrol diesel cars, which is um, a, a complete fallacy, not least because the, the infrastructure required to replace it on that scale is, um, is not much. Um, 
Neil, can I just bring you in? I mean, as a as a planner who's worked on lots of big schemes in in London and, and some of the issues we raised about or I said at the beginning and also some of the things Claire said about how actually planning and placemaking can can help in that respect. There are benefits to designing out uh, the car, notwithstanding Peter's point that um, in some areas they just have the ability to park anyway on the street. I think that's right. I, I agree with what's been said. I think it is a, it's a balancing. Some of these measures are gradual, but some of them are coming in in, the, in more of the short term. Um, I think, you know, it's fair to say it's a statutory requirement there, the London plan, all the policy at all levels is very clear um, on, on zero carbon targets, um, on, you know, shift, modal shifts, as you say, 80%. Um, but what we've got to face is the London plan is 52,000 homes a year uh, being planned. So I think it's imperative that there is a um, an effective uh planning, land use and design considerations that, that, that will mitigate it. I think land use planning is critical um, in terms of we're seeing better and much more effective mixed use schemes at higher density where there are good levels of accessibility. But I think, as you say as well, design um, is critical. We're getting much more effective use of land now. But I think a lot of the clients we're working with are embracing this and recognizing that it's more challenging to provide parking in new developments. Mm. Um, I think, you know, if you're looking at the, the demands on development to provide play space, which is ripe uh, for children, um, cycle parking, you know, plant, you know, renewables, uh, more well-being, I think it, it's more challenging to provide parking practically now anyway. Um, I think the, the economics and viability of it, I think we've seen a, a shift away from digging big basements, it's expensive to dig down, um, and I think the, the, the industry generally is shifting that way. Um, so I think you know the shift towards uh, low levels of parking is a positive uh, thing. I think the other consideration is effective use of funding. You know, sale monies, any contributions that could be uh, reinvested at local levels in terms of transport, um, local uh, healthy streets initiatives. I think that's another key consideration. Uh, thanks, Neil. I should have just said that if anybody watching us wants to submit questions, please do via your panel. I'll, I'll keep the discussion going, Chris, until um, until we've got some. Just want to bring Claire back in. Um, and just thinking about um, the impacts of the pandemic on car usage and people's behaviour, which of course um, will have changed some people's behaviour for the long term because the, the, the nature of how people live their lives um, uh, has shifted fundamentally, not just for the period of this pandemic. I just wondered your sort of experience in Lambeth about what, what impact that's had. Well, I think the pandemic had a profound impact, actually, because we started using our streets differently. 70% of our households live in flats, so they have no access to private outdoor space. So when we were in deep lockdown, maybe not number 10, but when we were in deep lockdown and people, we were being asked not to go out, there was nowhere to socialise. We were out on the street, we were queuing at our local corner shop. Um, and we were meeting and socialising at a distance. And so that was, I think, quite a big factor in our emergency transport responses at the time, and certainly in our discussions 
um, with um, number 10 around active travel, with TfL, with the Mayor of London and as London councils. Um, and I think that actually ignited a spark in a lot of people about what the world could look like, like when the street was not totally dominated by the car. And what we were fearful of and proven right to be fearful of that is that we were going to have a car led recovery, because as we know, the London uh, public transport system, absolutely, we should have the best transport system in the world and across the country. I agree with Peter, um, which is why it's um, really, really so um, disappointing, to put it mildly that we're in this standoff with the government about funding London. London is the only West, major Western city that doesn't have that daily um, subsidised operating grant because it was removed when Boris Johnson was mayor of London. So because of the over-reliance on the fares model, and when usage fell through the floor, so did their funding. So um, in order to get people back on uh, the buses and back on the tubes, which I believe were still not there, we were really worried that at that time, because we were being told not to get on the buses and the tubes and health workers had to get to St. Tommy's or wherever it was, that they needed um, healthy routes in order to do it. They needed other forms of uh, transport, whether it's walking or cycling. Um, and so my understanding is, is that the car use levels are now way back up. So we were right about that car-led recovery, that even though our buses are still crowded, we're going to have to look at what's been called um, a managed decline, where we're going to have fewer buses. So I think for me, that experience of everything coming in that those months in lockdown, of looking at how we were funding our transport system, at looking who was using the buses and the tubes, at looking how to stop a car-led recovery, did lead to us rethinking things differently. I mean, as I said, you know, we all know, people here know better than me, low traffic neighbourhoods have been around for decades. The South Bank is a low traffic neighbourhood. It used to have a road. It now has restaurants and where you can busk and hang out and go with your family. Um, we have designed estates decades as low traffic neighbourhoods so that you can't cut through. It was just the pace of change, I think, and the fact that we were in that moment that overused were but unprecedented, where our streets were just completely different and I think that therefore it did have a profound effect and I don't think we should lose that where people talked about hearing birdsong for the first time where children could literally walk down the road without their par parents feeling fearful for their safety um, so yes to answer your question it had a profound impact and I, it would be good to continue to have a profound impact can I just say one thing about electric vehicles I don't think we should change everything to electric vehicles. I think those that need to have vehicles on the road for health or medical reasons or mobility reasons or our refuse fleet emptying our bins, we need to um, move those over to electric vehicles. But I absolutely agree with everyone that we need to be finding alternative ways of getting around and a, a properly funded state-of-the-art public transport system is absolutely crucial to that. And that's depending on government funding. And, and on the electric cars, not least, because as I've noticed in my neighbourhood, we now have um, wires coming out of the front of people's houses um, across the pavement with those sort of yellow bits over the top of them, which in respect of public realm and enjoying uh, your streets somewhat um, somewhat ruin it, particularly for a young child on a bike. Um, it's a bit of a bit of a hurdle. Um, Peter, I wanted just some of the things you were talking about, and I, I, I got the sense that um, some of the way you view policy on this is that it is a bit of a blunt instrument. It's not 
um, been thought through enough. It's not um, nuanced enough. Uh, I wonder if if you've sort of got any more thoughts on how one might be a um, yeah. little bit smarter, given there are different gradations and levels of, of, yeah. of problem. Look, we're dealing with human nature and staggering. You meant you use the word blunt, in, use the expression blunt instruments, and blunt instruments rarely ever work. We have got to actually see an absolute shift in people's attitude and behaviour. This will take a very a long time. Um, by which time, by the time we end up on it, um, well, large numbers of people who are in politics today will be scarcely a footnote, or e even if they're in the index of a book. But what we need to do is actually take this out of the politics. Yes, it's easy to make jibes about number 10 Downing Street or anything else, but that will be soon forgotten. And we will still have environmental problems going on. What we need to do is take this out, in one respect, out of a party political forum, look globally and understand where we have to go, what we have to do about it, how we have to reduce emissions, how we have to make sure that we can save the world we live in because i would add it wasn't just we could just hear a bird um in the height of the pandemic you could just hear a bird sing i walked out of my front door when I, we were permitted to go and do the do the um walk and just to breathe in deep and smell how differently the river smelled because there wasn't the smell and to walk down roads and you could you could sense the smell, the taste of grass and leaves on trees. It was a totally, totally different environment. And we have to understand that people want to go to that, but they also need to leave their lives. Now, for example, let me just give a couple of Tower Hamlet factors. We mentioned people living in tall buildings. As I say, we have more tall buildings than anywhere in the country. If you're on the 51st floor or the 60th floor of a tall building, the likelihood of you having a car is absolutely minimal. So those are the, are the people least likely to be affected by this. But in terms of electric vehicles, the council recently spent £16 million on LED streetlights. Good idea. We receive more money than any other local authority in the country. We got our £223 million in the from various housing grants is quite extraordinary, higher than anywhere else. But of those six, of those um, LED streetlights, not one had a vehicle charger, even those by parking bays. Now that is something the council could and should have looked at because that would have signified a change. But my view is we really do need to understand public transport because we can't actually confine people to their homes or go back 200 years and imagine that your life will be your life will be as far as you can walk in one or two days. We must accept that people want to get about and travel. Therefore, we must have a sustainable transport policy. And in my view, that means much, much more electric public transport. We need to make sure our railways throughout the country are electrified. I mean, I think diesel trains, belching fumes are quite disgusting. We also need to reduce the reliance on air transport. And I'm very sorry to say that at one time when I was a lad, people had great people had great big traveling holidays, perhaps once or twice, a, once a decade, not every year nipping on a plane to go anywhere else, let alone getting on an aeroplane to go from London to Scotland or something like that. We have to understand that all these things have got to change and they really must change. Thank you.
Peter. Chris, have we had any questions in? Yeah, thank you for sending through your questions. Got a couple here. Um, I'll kick up with this one. It says, uh, what do the panel think about road pricing and the need to reduce car usage by 27%? Max, you mentioned that earlier from the mayor. To meet the 2013 net zero targets. Let's go to Victoria first on that. Um, I think it's a good idea. Um, I think it comes down to the carrots and the sticks and you've got things like the congestion charge and the ULEZ in London, if we're talking in London, um, they've made a really positive change. And so in terms of you know, the mayor's sort of final target of, of widening that, um, and he's just recently announced that he's, he has an intention to certainly try and take it out to you know, the, the, the outer limits of Greater London. Um, I, I think it's a good idea, um, but you need you need the carrots and the sticks together, um, and you know some people some people can't actually afford that. So you need to sort of think about the the inclusivity of it as well. But um, you, in a sort of black and white, would it have an effect on reducing car use and congestion and improving emissions? Then yes, it would. In the on the you know the environmental side of things, and potentially raise revenue for greater investment in public transport. Um, yes. Neil, any comments on road pricing or, or any of the other sort of potential policy um, areas? Well, on pricing, I think, I think it's right. I think the gradual introduction of pricing is appropriate, um, I think, as a balance of measures. And as you say, Max, I think the key thing is that reinvestment, that it's reinvested appropriately into, into public transport infrastructure. Um, so I certainly think that, and I think a number of authorities are looking at it, the city's been looking at it, looking at appropriate ways of doing it and grad gradually introducing it. Um, I think it's positive that the authorities are now taking a more proactive approach in sort of planning uh, for public realm um, improvements more generally uh, that, that, that manage car usage and the city's been doing it and the, the initiatives at Bank, for example, um, that, that, that positively encourage different ways of travel. Great, thank you. Claire or Peter, any, any comments on that? I'll defer to Claire first and then come in. But otherwise I've got observations. I'm, I'm happy for you to go, Peter. Okay, um, I'm very, I'm, I think that we have to be imaginative on this. And I remember 40 years ago, the first time I went to the United States and I drove from East Coast to West Coast. And I noted very quickly that as you go down those great big highways, every so often we will go through a, um, an area and people, the driver was tossing coins, which paid a toll. I'm, I actually am a believer in toll roads and I would start tolling most of the motorways. I told the M25, that kind of thing, because one, you will reduce short journeys because people won't nip on the M25 just to go from one junction to another if they've got a, if they've got a pay, even if it's only a pound or something between their journey. So you'll reduce those short journeys, but equally it will bring money in. The other way, I would look at overall road pricing. We pay the road funding license, but of course that is just a, a method of government revenue. It doesn't actually go into what we need. I believe we should actually ring fence that. Something else that is, in recent years, and did it grow in the pandemic, are these wretched Deliveroo scooters that are clogging up 
street after street in London, and I'm very keen. I'm very keen to hear what Claire has to say because you you fought off some of the dark kitchens in Lambeth, and I wonder if parts of Lambeth are clogged up with these scooters going around because people, frankly, can't be bothered to pop down to a supermarket and stick something in a microwave. They they get on the phone and have it carried down the road by somebody on a scooter on an L plate. That is pumping Lord knows what into the environment and serving no purpose whatsoever. Claire. I mean, on that last point, um, I think there's a London trial going on of electric scooters and a lot of those um, eats and deliveries or whoever they are, I'm sure there's several companies are actually um, on electric bikes, which um, is fantastic. In terms of road pricing, it's a tool and it's a tool that we need to use in a wider context. Peter mentioned about vehicle excise duty. We don't retain it in London. I think we're one of only three places in the country. Um, and as I and I go back to the 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 lack of a funding deal for TfL with government, whereas deals have been made with all these other rail companies and that we need that certainty of funding so that we know how much we have to raise because road pricing is a tool, but we have to make sure that it's not too disproportionately unfair. Um, because there are families living on the outskirts of London that might be living either side of the border. But there are also really importantly businesses who need to come into London and we need to ensure that there are grants available and there are mechanisms available to ensure that people aren't disproportionately hit. But definitely it's, it's definitely a tool that we should be using in the mix of tools in order to yeah, create a more sustainable city where we can breathe the air, as Peter says. Thank you, Chris. More questions, I think, have come in. Yeah, so following on from that, someone says, as well as electric vehicles and modal shift, uh, the transport decarbonisation plan makes a clear need to increase car occupancy. What are the tools available to local authorities to help do that? Or is that a realistic aim from a post-pandemic world? What role, for instance, could a car club play? Well, car clubs have been around for, for, for some time, haven't they? It, it, particularly when it, when it comes to planning new de development. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what impact they've had, but Claire, you look like you're about to come in there. No, I missed the middle words, what Chris said. I do apologise. It went funny. All right. I'll read it again. So he says, um, as well as electric vehicles and modal shifts, the transport decarbonisation plan makes a clear need to increase car occupancy. Oh, and he's asking tools available to local authorities to help do that and is it a realistic thing post-pandemic yeah i mean i i, I if i may max i think car mm. clubs are part of um a solution i think they're really important because i know especially lots of young people i sound like an old codger but lots of young people are not going into the huge cost of having a car in london but go into a zip car or another car club or share cars I think they're definitely part of the mix in terms of us having local transport hubs as well. And in Brixton Market, um, we have with the Cross River Partnership and Brixton Businesses, we have collaborated and funded um, an electric van there so that people can hire it out for their deliveries. That sort of whole model of sharing vehicles, I think, is a really important one, actually. Victoria, you must have some experience in, in particularly with car clubs in, in planning. Yeah, I'm nodding away. I completely agree um, with Councillor Holland. Um, car clubs have a very real place um, in, in creating that modal shift that everybody is seeking away from vehicles. And particularly when you talk about car-free development, we advise many clients every day about car-free development. 
and car-free development works where it's located in accessible locations and where it's supported by things like having a car club so it, you know if we advise on car-free development the number one thing we always advise on is behind is it in an accessible location will it have a access to um car clubs chris any more yeah so picking on that point about younger generations someone said how a younger generation's attitude to driving different to the older generation well i would have thought they as claire indicates it's the the cost is incredibly prohibitive and and if you live in a city like london you probably do do use it less i mean a, a lot of you know certainly peter and claire will speak to lots of people on the doorstep and uh, and around in their neighborhoods i wonder if that that is reflected if that is a, a conversation you have or indeed young people just more concerned generally about the climate emergency and um and that issue peter do you want to come in first yeah i i think i i think there is a lot and i'm again i i'm so atypical here on the isle of dogs because loads and loads of the young people i know do not have a car they just don't have a car but they are blessed with pretty good access to public transport locally we've got a lot of it and it is very very good it's it's but it is making this generational shift and i i think we do not need a blunt instrument people need to understand the problems we've got and they need to have the access to public transport and we keep coming back to this one point if you've got good public transport why do you need a car look i'm a I'm a season ticket holder for a major London football club. I would no more think of taking a car to that to, to a game than fly in the air. But it's I can do that because I can travel there in 45 minutes by using the access to public transport we have in London. But in other cities, that is not an option. And we have to really work on good, sustainable, efficient, available public interest and public transport across the country. And that actually should be our first focus. If the public transport is good and it's there, people will use it. I think there's an interesting point there potentially about um, demographic change and some of the um, uh, things that are happening naturally, perhaps um, uh, reducing car ownership and, and usage over time, alongside obviously the the, the policy instrument. Um, this is about London, but Neil, I thought I would just bring you in as someone who lives in a very different kind of um, place, because there is a. It isn't. It isn't just a, a climate emergency. Isn't just an issue for city. That's an issue for the. Um, the UK and, and the world. I just wonder if um, you had any perspective on your rural idyll. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's, yeah, it's not that far out of town, but it, it feels like it. I mean, it's um, you're you're right. It, it's fundamentally different once you sort of get outside of the immediate London belt. Uh, I think it crosses over a number of those points. You know, the point on car occupancy, for example, um, car sharing was becoming increasingly. Um, common particularly on sort of coming into the station but I think the challenge now is that working practices are changing it's much more flexible um, and less predictable so everybody's got different journeys at different times so the practicality of 
uh, car sharing, it, it becomes much more challenged. Um, <clears throat> certainly, I think the connectivity, you know, in villages outside of London is nowhere near. So the, the expectations um, for car ownership are certainly a lot, uh, a lot greater. Having said that, we've we've come down to one car, and I think there is a shift in thinking generally around how we're travelling, whether it's cycling to the station, um, and just just not having cars around the villages. I think we've certainly seen the benefit in lockdown um, in villages and market towns of, of enjoying the space more as people have in London. Great, thank you, Chris. We've probably got time for one or two more. Mm, so someone said, um, as we've emerged from COVID, how has the pandemic changed our driving patterns over the last two years? And um, how has remote working impacted our car use? I don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there are any statistics on that. I think I kind of spoke about that earlier uh, in terms of how that sort of profound impact of um, of the pandemic so we probably won't revisit that unless anybody's got anything particular to add i'm sure in time there will be a whole load of statistics that come out that um illustrate um uh, the points that claire was making is there anything else any other questions and someone said should the government make all e-scooters legal given their potential contribution to sustainability no <laughs> there's an easy one uh we'll go around <laughs> Absolutely no, they're ghastly things. Okay, that was that was good. Neil? <laughs> um, I think it's more testing. I think we need more understanding of how they're used and how they can be used safely. Victoria? Yeah, I agree. There's a possibly a place for them, but I think safety is the key. Um, all for any form of electric transport, but the speed they go at um, and the infrastructure that we have we need to think twice before just allowing them. And Claire? Uh, well, I think that's why we're doing London trials, because they've been manufactured, but the regulations and the law are way behind. And so we need to work out that they're, they're there, they exist. So we need to work out how we can ensure that they um, we, we accommodate them safely, not just for the non-scooter users, but for those using scooters as well, because as Victoria said, the speed that they go at. But I, I you know, there's no point in us ignoring them. They're there and people own them mm -hmm. and use them. So we need to uh, work together, which we are across London councils with TfL to look at what system of regulation should we have in place that would be manageable, a bit like dockless bikes that are fantastic, but get left sometimes in, you know, like cluttering up a pavement so you can't get a wheelchair or a pushchair by it. So we need to introduce regulation, which I'm sure Peter will agree with, but regulation in order to make sure that we manage these safely. Well, safety yeah. should come first on anything. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it is interesting because you, it is adding another sort of user to the hierarchy in terms of, um, of roads and pavements. And while we continue to have yeah. high car usage and bicycles and um, uh, I've certainly noticed them a lot more around me and actually Claire the thing that annoys me the most is the one that you just alluded to is you have these ones that can just be left anywhere mm. because they're, they're yeah. linked to a system it is for the public realm which we've talked about the importance of that um, it's terrible because they do just get left unfortunately lying across the middle of a, a, a pavement 
Um, right, so those Chris. Green things, aren't they? I thought they one. I found one. I thought it's been dumped. <laughs> well, that that's the thing. They're not dumped because they don't necessarily have to be in a dock. Some of them, Chris. Yeah, we, we're going to do one <laughs> one more quickly if we've got one before I sum. So someone's highlighted that on average, TfL fares went up nearly 3% last year. And they're asking, how do we reconcile that the mayor's push for more people to use public transport when, um, when fares are going up? Okay, I, mean, I think so. Victoria raised it earlier, that sort of ability to afford public yeah. transport. obviously a, a funding issue that we've discussed. Um, I'll, go to, I'll go to Neil first on this question. I think that's a very difficult one, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure I actually know the answer on that. Um, it's Victoria, do you? <laughs> well, I think it's, um, <laughs> the fares need to come down. It's really simple, fares need to come down. But as Councillor Holland mentioned earlier, the way that London's transport is structured, the, the, the funding of it, um, at the moment, there's a whopping great funding black hole um, that needs to be filled in a, in order to allow those fares to be reduced. How are you going to fill the funding black hole? I think that's probably where the mayor's um, proposals to introduce some form of road user charging come in. And I think it all ties back to something that Councillor Gold, Gold's touched on earlier, is time. And we could all be sitting here in you know 20 years time talking about something very similar. But in, in, in my view, we don't have time. And when you think in terms of the climate crisis that we're looking at, everybody has, you know, all the councils have declared that there is a climate crisis. There is a real need to do something. And we're talking about looking at, you know, carbon neutral, carbon zero by 2030, 2050. It's 2022 and there, there isn't time. Um, you know, my, my daughter, she's seven and she constantly says to me, we've got eight years to change the world. And I, I don't think she's far wrong. If we don't instigate change quickly, then um, you know we're going to be in a scenario where we can't come back from it. So funding is key to all of it, but reducing public transport fares has to be a way forward because it's just it's a barrier at the moment. As as you say, they've increased and people cannot afford to take public transport. So unless you reduce the fares as well as provide all the other measures to promote sustainable travel by foot by cycle, um, the the full circle doesn't quite knit together. Thank you. I'm going to go to Peter and then to Claire just for some very quick final thoughts on either that or, or anything we've discussed. Peter. Um, there's one thing that I think there is, in terms of the climate, here we are, it's the 31st of January. And when I was a kid many years ago, the 31st of January, we would have been shivering. We're not shivering today. Anybody who wants to know about how the climate has changed. Look out of your window today and compare what it was in the 1970s or 60s, and we are in a totally different world. In terms of these issues of fare, we've fares on public transport. We have to engage the debate, and it has to be a massive, I, I hate this word debate, it has to be a massive public education exercise for people to understand that we need sustainable transport. Ultimately, they have to that people will have to pay for it in one way or the other so that the fares can go down or that it can be more available to all. There is not a universal money pot. Therefore, people must understand it in one way or another, it will be paid for. 
and that will be perhaps increasing the road fund license i don't know i'm i'm not here to provide that solution but there is a there is a hole in the public transport financing and i keep coming back to the point and i will reiterate it more there is a world beyond london and you go outside of london and the transport the pub, availability of public transport in london is spectacular compared to many other places in this country and it's the same in europe you go to rural italy or Italy or France, and they have the same problems looking at Paris as we do from rural this country looking at London. Thank you, Peter. And Claire, any final comments? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that last comment about colleagues outside of London also, always saying to us in London, but your transport system's amazing, which is why we need to protect it which is why we need um, a proper funding model that works going forward so that we can protect fares, so that we don't price people out of using it. And also an important point to remember is that um, the country, the UK's economic revival is dependent on London, which is dependent on a, a, a clean, affordable public transport system. We create jobs, every tube train uh, is jobs in the, in the north of the country, et cetera. Um, and final word, if I may, because I didn't come in on it about young people, school children, um, you know, as Victoria said, they are absolutely consumed with that this and so they should be their future and what that future looks like. The young people that we have in Lambeth are struggling. They can't afford to leave home. They can't afford rents. They certainly can't afford to own a car. Um, but I think we need to listen to those voices um, and to hear what their solutions are for the future. Because if we don't involve young people in the design of our built environment, but also our public transport system and our transport system as a whole, then it's not going to work because they're the ones that are going to be carrying it on and we need to therefore make it sustainable. Um, so that would be my plea to have more young people involved in this whole conversation. Thank you, Claire, and, and thank you, everyone. I mean, there's an awful lot of agreement, uh, actually, in what was a very interesting discussion. Um, uh, and I think it is clear that we are living through this, this modal shift. And for all the reasons that um, all of us have discussed in terms of um, toxic air and public realm and, and the wider environmental questions, or, you know, just at the, the very micro level, wanting to hear the birds singing and uh, and having a different kind of local environment in which to exist. I think, as always, the art of politics and governance is how you do it. Um, and I think there was some really interesting uh, points and, and, and policy areas that, that we brought up today. Um, I'm going to leave it there. Um, if you heard a very, rather annoying noise a moment ago, it was our fire alarm uh, doing its Monday morning test, which means it is 10 o'clock. Um, Thank you to uh, Claire, to Peter, to Neil, to Victoria, my colleague Chris, uh, for the questions. Uh, and hope you have a fantastic week. But we shall leave it there. Goodbye. Thank you. Yeah.